Hey, Goblins, real quick before we jump into this week's episode, Goblins and Growlers and Quid Pro Roll is going to be at Queen City Anime Con in Charlotte, North Carolina, August 5th through 7th. We're going to be doing panels, probably a live show, going to be running the tabletop gaming room, going to have a booth. Come say hey. It is a vax and mask mandatory event, so make sure you get all your paperwork and stuff in order before you buy your ticket. But grab that ticket, come by, say hey, uh, play some D&D, come to a panel, uh, hopefully see us do a live show. We'll see you there. That's uh, Queen City Anime Con, August 5th through 7th in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Goblins and Growlers podcast. I'm Josh Maltby, at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. Uh, I'm Brandon Dingus, at Way of Brandalore on Twitter and Instagram and other places. <laughs> so many places. So many, all the places. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse, uh, also known as Mordenkainen 2, Ma- Multiverse of Madness, and Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I kind of, I want to start this conversation off first with something that I read in a Dicebreaker article uh, by the lovely Chase Carter who had kind of an opinion piece that he released on May the 12th that... And just just before we jump into that, just to be clear, for anybody who's unaware and not on the pulse, Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse is the new supplement book that just came out like three days ago as of us recording this. Oh, yeah. I, I sometimes forget that some people aren't like constantly immersed in D&D culture. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, if you're if you're this is a complete revelation to you and you've never heard of this thing before, just hang tight. We'll start talking about it in yeah, a minute. It's it's a fascinating book and we have opinions on it, as I'm sure surprises everyone. Um so this this article was talking about how D D Beyond uh is no longer selling Volo's Guide to Monsters, right? And then Mordenkainen's um Oh, do I have that backwards? Is it Bolo's Tome of Foes and Mordenkainen's Guide to Monsters? Yeah, it's it's uh it's Bolo's Guide to Monsters, Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. Oh my god, why make those names so confusing? I took paper notes so I can refer to them in my good notebook. Good man, good man. Yeah. So basically the the way that's going to work is uh if you already had those, if you purchased them previously, you still have those on D&D Beyond. You can still run campaigns with them. You can still show them to players that are part of campaigns that you're part of. You still have access to all of that content. But if you do not have that content and you go on to D&D Beyond right now and you try to purchase that content, it's not there. It's been completely delisted. And the reason for that is that a lot of the content that was in those two books is now reformatted, tweaked slightly for balance issues, and in Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse. Yeah, and when we were talking before we started recording, you said, oh, you know, this is really no different from if they just stopped publishing a book. And you didn't seem too uh, put off by the whole so, thing. Did I read that so right? I, I want to be completely clear on this. I don't think it's no different than when they stop publishing a book, but I think it is a similar kind of vibe where you can't buy it from Wizards anymore. The difference between this and a physical book is that you could potentially still list a physical book somewhere like eBay or at a used bookstore or something like that, where with this, it's attached to your account. There's nothing you can do to detach it from your account and give it to somebody else. Yeah, when you said that earlier, you probably noticed me like bristling a little bit because <laughs> I just had that in the chamber. I was like, "But you, there's no, it's not the same because I could go buy a used copy no, of it." Is... Like I bought, I bought a copy of like a D and D module that came out like 30 years ago, not too long yeah. ago. <laughs> this is like uh, buying video games digital versus physical. I like buying physical copies of games because I'm the kind of person who finishes playing a game and then likes to loan it to my friends. I'm not loaning my whole system to my friends so they can play this one game I have. I'm just going to loan them the game. And if I don't have a physical copy, I can't do that. So bottom line is you're not upset about it. 
but you'd recognize how some people could be upset Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Well, so for me personally, the fact that they are re-releasing all the content, it's kind of like, I don't know, it would it would be like Nintendo still selling copies of Mario 64 all the way up to the point where they started doing the like Mario 3D All-Stars re-release that includes Mario 64. Like I, for me personally, I don't see a big issue with that, except if you're a collector kind of person like you and I are, who wants to look back on the history of the document. Mm -hmm. For me, it, it, the whole thing, uh, I've got opinions on digital ownership, uh, and it, it all comes back around to, and I'm sure there, this is not unfamiliar to anybody who's thought about this, just the whole idea of like buying something versus purchasing a license for something until they decide you don't get the license anymore. Uh, I remember, I don't know, it was five or six years ago, I was at work, and uh, one of the guys who worked for me was like 12 years younger than me, and I was talking about buying an album, and he's like, why would you do that? Just subscribe to Spotify. And it actually is only in the last six, seven months that I actually subscribed to Spotify because I was it was taking me so long to jump on that digital ownership bus for music. Because at least when I would buy stuff like 10, 12 years ago through iTunes or something like that, I could download the actual physical MP3. And, or not physical MP3, but have the <laughs> file locally so nobody could just take it from me. Um, but, you know, if, if I primarily receive an artist through Spotify and then they decide to delist themselves from Spotify, then I'm SOL. So that's always why I preferred to do either physical media like CDs. I hung on to that for way too long and actually buying the MP3s so I could download those and copy them and put them in various places rather than just purchasing a license. But that's a real big tangent that's sort of related to this. But I have never bought a book through D&D Beyond, so this means very little to me personally, but I very much understand where folks are coming from on this. Um, you know, I, I have, you know, I guess we can sort of get into a little bit talking about uh, the new Mordenkainen book, uh, Monsters of the Multiverse, because uh, when, the, when they announced it and I started to understand exactly what it was, how it wasn't like a new bestiary, it was essentially just a repackaging of stuff. I had, I have a lot of evolving thoughts on this uh, that have uh, metamorphosed over the last week, probably. I had a very shitty initial reaction to this because I was just like, this is a cash grab. This is BS. This is total BS. And they should be doing more original stuff, etc. But I got the book and I started reading through it and I read some of the statements from Wizards and things like that. And I thought, like I said, I thought at first it was just terrible to do repurposing like this and charge people 50 bucks for it. Um, but I sat with it for a while. I decided it's kind of fine. Like I'm fine with it if it's advertised properly um, because rather than having people buy two books for like $35 a piece, now they can get most of that content in one book that costs 50 bucks. And it has more than the content uh, it has more it draws from more sources than just volos and tomophos because it also has stuff from the princes of the apocalypse book from the eberron book for 5e that came out and from uh, mythic odysseys of theros so it's mixing in a lot of different stuff and as sort of a one-stop shop maybe if you don't want to buy all those or you never bought all those it makes sense um the issue is I'm not totally sure it was advertised correctly for what it is uh, because I didn't even really understand that till I got the book and started doing a little bit of research on it. And that might just be because I'm dumb and <laughs> I just was too busy to really dig into it until I actually had the book in my hand. But if, if it was like, hey, we're putting out this new book, it contains stuff from these books. So if you don't have those books, but you want to get this cool content that we've got that's related to some of this other stuff that's coming out. Because honestly, when I first heard him talk about it, I thought it was sort of kind of related to Spelljammer because of what they called that UA that came out last year. Uh, what was it? Travelers of the yep. Multiverse. Which really, if you think about it, it makes more sense for that to be related to like a Planescape release that I don't think has been officially announced or anything right now. But... It made me think, oh, well, I guess it must be related to the Spelljammer thing that we all sort of kind of know is coming out in 2022. And this was last year, so we didn't have it confirmed. So 
I'm not saying it was a bait and switch, but I think they could have been a little bit clearer in their promotion of it on what what this was. And maybe I'm alone in that again because I'm dumb, and I I was only paying surface level attention to. I it. think that's fair. I think a fair few of your friendly local game shop owners will help guide folks with a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, I picked up a copy even though I didn't really need to because I have the books that all of this is collected in. But there's also something to be said for you've got all of the bonus races and a lot of the monsters from a ton of different books all collected in one place. Not having to be like, oh, wait, was that in Xanathar's? Oh, was that in Theros? Like, what, let me find the book that was in so that I can go look up the reference materials I need to find. It's kind of nice. I'm not going to lie. I don't know. It I don't is. know that it's 50 bucks nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it is nice. And I, I want to be clear that I still have some misgivings about it, but I'm just a little bit more at peace with it. Um, like I said, if you go in, if you go into this and purchase this, knowing exactly what it is, you have no right to be upset when you're like, hey, wait a minute, this is just a repackaging. Well, yeah, if they told you that it was a repackaging, then that's that's sort of your problem that you elected not to pay attention to that um you know i just had this thought while we were talking i wonder how long it is before DD beyond introduces some sort of microtransaction feature like let's say i want uh the lore and a stat block for a particular monster but i'm not really necessarily jonesing to pay for the whole book could i pay 99 cents for that like a song on iTunes. I mean, that certainly seems like a reasonable course of action, both as a convenience standpoint and from the space of, I don't want everything that's in a book, but I want these five specific things. I don't need the other 45. So I'll pay the five bucks instead of the 50. Like I, I think there's logic there, but there's also something to be said for that is a complicated amount of shopkeeping to be doing. Mm -hmm. And I yeah, I, I imagine at some point it's it, it doesn't make financial sense for you to buy a la carte like that. I mean, it's probably it's, it's going to be like a cable company or something like that. Yeah, we, it would be nice if I could just buy this particular group of monsters or something like maybe just, you know, I want these undeads or I want these. All, all the different kind of zombies or something and maybe i pay like four or five dollars for that that would probably be something that would happen before an individual market like a uh, monster not, purchase not situation. least of which you have to keep in mind the licensing agreements that they have with the people who are writing these books you know if you say oh yeah you're going to be part of a compilation and we're going to put you in with a bunch of other authors and here's your here's your fee that's a lot easier to then be like, okay, we, we are selling your book digital, but you've already been paid your fee. If you're like, we're selling your individual monster with lore block, then the chances of an author being like, yeah, I'd like a royalty for that since you're going to just keep selling it and keep selling it. Well, I don't think they need, I don't think they're going to be worried about royalties anyway, because when you do work for wizards, it's all work for hire and you don't retain anything i mean it's it can all be that could all be addressed in a contract um and this is like well you've written this uh this monster for us uh we're gonna do whatever we want with it now i hear what you're saying i think there's more of an argument for people trying to retain more rights if wizards is going to be selling their individual creation not as part of a compilation mm -hmm. yeah i mean there would probably be arguments i'm just saying from like wizard's point of view they'd be like yeah i don't care we'll get we'll get noah back on here to weigh in <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so anyways i kind of hijacked what you were talking about when you were talking about uh like tomophos and guide to monsters being uh delisted no actually that was kind of the conversation i was looking to have was you know with with tomophos and guide to monsters both getting delisted how do we feel about that as individuals and i felt pretty confident that our general inclination would be, well, this is why we buy physical, is because we want to have that record. We want to have that history. We want to have the stack of books on the bookshelf that indicates how far we've come. 
Yeah, and then you're reminded of just how inconvenient that is when you go to pack them up to move somewhere. I mean, there is that as well. For some folks who are looking to downsize their bookshelves, it might be nice to pick up uh, Monsters of the Multiverse and do away with a couple of reference books. Yeah, uh, so how, how much did you uh, dig into the Monsters of the Multiverse? Book? I didn't make it terribly far in the book itself because I literally got it last week and got to pick it up maybe twice before we started this recording <laughs> so typical typical, typical josh. josh um yeah so yeah i i was late to getting the book and then i only got a couple of opportunities to read it but i what i saw was pretty neat i really like a lot of the art assets they're using i know some of those are reused i know some of those are new I, I enjoyed the overall aesthetic of the book together. I uh, We did have a brief conversation about Kenku being kind of wild now. Yeah, I mean, and that's uh, a good sort of entry point into talking about some of the edits that they made for this. Because it's not just a copy and paste job from different uh, bestiaries, those different books and everything. They've actually gone in and made changes and we'll get into the details of that in just a minute but the one that struck me is for example like kenku now are not strictly mimics like they do not just speak in mimicry it's mimicry is an ability that they have but it's not their thing they are now really good at mimicry not limited by mimicry yeah, which you and I talked about talked about this a little bit the other day when we were sort of roughing out some plans for this, but I feel like that really destroys the fun and the challenge of playing as a Kenku. Like like you like you to your credit though, you're like, well that doesn't stop somebody from playing it that way if they want. But it it was Kenku was always a unique choice because it forced you to make some interesting role playing decisions uh, as you played it because you could only essentially repeat the last thing that you heard and changing it so that they're just really good mimics it leans into kenko kenku being set up to be like dex-based rogues essentially uh to give them another ability to do that kind of thing but it it, it takes away a little bit of the magic uh for it i'm for inclined me. to agree and i like the flavor of i will admit most of the times i had players playing kenku at my table i didn't tell them that they had to use only the things they had just recently heard but in, that's in part because my experience with parrots and ravens and the like is that they've got a few phrases that they really like that they rely on let's ravens do not do that ravens do do that ravens yes. talk i've never heard a raven uh, talk. oh wait crows but i think ravens can as well uh, look up. I'm sorry. I have look to up look a video up. of Edgar Allan Crow. Ra I'm googling Ravens talk. <laughs> Can Ravens actually talk? Uh, all right. So in the Google result, people also ask, "Can Ravens actually talk?" Ravens can talk and sing. They have a vast repertoire of a hundred or more vocalizations. With their deep voice, ravens can mimic human speech and singing and imitate other bird sounds. They call to inform them. How have I lived this long and didn't know that? Uh, the videos for Edgar Allan Crow include some of his favorite phrases, like, what a whopper. And what? What? So they're Wario. <laughs> One of the other top stories results for Ravens Talk is from CBS Sports. And it says, Joe Burrow says he loves playing the Baltimore <laughs> Ravens because, quote, they like to talk. Oh, my Lord. Uh Ravens roll their eyes at Bengals QB Joe Burrow's trash talk. Good lord. So, yes, Ravens talk. Much like parrots uh, and other mimicry birds, they can learn phrases and sounds and then mimic those phrases and sounds. And my... what So what I had people do at my tables was I was like, look, you're going to have some phrases that are common phrases that you use a lot and you use them to mean a variety of things. You don't have to be limited just to the stuff you've just heard. But if you have just heard it, then you can use any piece of that as well. 
Bumblebee in the first Transformers movie was yes, a kangaroo. Yes, exactly. As goofy <laughs> as that is to say, 100%. Um, so, at the end of the day, this isn't, like, anything huge. Because, like Josh pointed out, you can continue to play Kenku like that. It just, it seemed like an odd choice to me. Because it sort of reduced the differences in some of these... Uh, player races like the additional player races that are in here because the, in the, in the new book the first section of it is additional player races and then the second section of it is the much larger bestiary um so really it's like one sixth of the book is player races and then the rest of it is the bestiary but it it almost felt like that decision to me seemed like they were reducing the differences in those additional player races to something mathematical and mechanical rather than really changing the role rather than focusing on the role play aspects of it which i mean from their like that's totally legit from their perspective because they did to their credit and we'll go into this in a little bit try to put a lot of effort into differentiating a lot of those and i don't want to get too hung up on this but it just struck me as it just struck me as an odd choice, like I've said like half a dozen times. I think the point. real reason you and I are harping on Kenku as much as we are is because both of us saw the same block and we're like, what the? Are you insane? Which is that a Kenku that has proficiency in a skill can take advantage with that skill up to the number of time, up to the number of proficiency it has per long rest. Yeah, Kenku are superheroes. Wait, what? <laughs> Uh, but like I said, the the book starts out with all the different uh, player races that it's collected over the years from like the other books. So we got like Bugbear, Centaur, Deep Gnome, Changelings, uh, Githrazi and Githyanki, uh, Goliath, Goblins. I'm just sort of leafing through here. Uh, Minotaurs, Lizard Folk, Satyrs, Orcs. Uh, there's just a whole section on the different kinds of Elves. We got Shifters, Tabaxi, Triton, Tortle, uh, and Yuan-Ti. It's, I'm not going to lie, it's nice to have all those there in in alphabetical yep. order. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased about that. And they've tweaked a lot of the lore and everything. Um, one of the things I would suggest uh, everybody do is, um, let's see here, go to the, um, uh, the product page on wizards.com for the book. And if you scroll down uh, part of the way, you're going to see a series of videos. And it's an interview with Jeremy Crawford, who's sort of the principal architect, like game design architect of D&D, &D, uh, uh, at least for the player's handbook and some of this other stuff. But the videos go into what's changed in a lot of the monster lore, spellcasting monsters, monsters are tougher, changes to playable races and things like that. Uh, it's very worthwhile. Uh, I think all told, like if you watch all the videos, it's maybe like, 25 minutes out of your day so if you're really interested in it this is um something you should uh, invest the time in but to uh give some bullet points for that they talk about uh, a lot of the story and mechanical changes uh to the playable races uh one of the things they single out is that you know no longer a predetermined ability score adjuster uh that's race-based and this is all stuff that we've been hearing for the last two years when they started really making some efforts to de-emphasize race in the game so this isn't surprising but it was just it was interesting to hear them just spend a little bit of time talking about it on here i um because i did enjoy the lore explanation for that being that this book is supposed to represent those races as they are spread throughout the multiverse where the individual books that may have like oh well elves are more dexterous than gnomes or things like that is specifically set in that universe with that region so that this is more of a all-encompassing guidebook and that is only for specific areas yeah i mean that's a nice out um that i think that's a perfectly fine explanation for it um let's see uh one of the it's a, it's a really it's a really solid interview series and one of the things uh that jeremy crawford kept coming back to is that 
race has a really outsized effect on a player's choice of class. They said they said they did um, you know decent research on it and got a lot of feedback. And essentially, what he's talking about is min maxing because he's saying like, oh well, you know, if I'm going to be playing a cleric, then I want to pick this race because that gets me a buff to the relevant stat for that so i can sort of maximize what i'm going to be able to do and that makes sense it it makes sense because what they're trying to do is offer better they're, they're trying to de-emphasize the homo homogeneity of the races like josh was saying because um they're using the explanation of drawing from all around the multiverse to explain that which is fine they want to create better options for character creation and I wondered if that is sort of a response to Pathfinder 2E and how everybody talks about how versatile the character creation is there because it offers a lot more of a mix and match. I think, I think that's probably accurate. I think it's also something that D&D players have been asking for since 3.5 and not really getting is a lot more flexibility in character creation. Because it's not, it's not hard to make it more flexible. I think D&D was worried that losing that flexibility, or gaining that flexibility would lose some of the flavor of what makes D&D D&D. I think they were also concerned about balancing issues. And at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, this is going to cause maybe a little bit of balancing issues because the min-maxers will have even a little more room to play with. But on the flip side of that, most of us don't play this game to min-max and win. And if you're really looking to have hardline balance, like, oh, well, elves can't have this because they have this other thing as well, then just make that part of your Adventurer's League rules. Yeah, a couple of other things about this from, from this part of the interview. He, he said that the research they did, they uh, found out that the mathematical impact of those kind of buffs, like your, you know, like your min-max buffs that people were trying to do, it ended up being really minimal in the long haul anyway because it was only truly beneficial at the early levels to help give you a leg up, which, may, again, makes sense. Um, and they had to go through and sort of realign all the, the essentially race-based traits they were giving folks, made them feel more equivalent. But by that, he emphasized that he did not mean he wanted them to be outright substitutions. Essentially, like, give them sort of, you know equal treatment in terms of the weight they offer to a choice but they all do different things rather than just being a straight up substitution um and one of the things um this this sort of uh dovetails a little bit with what you were talking about about kenku and their proficiency bonuses and things uh he was talking about and i never play elves but i think this has been a thing for a little while now um about uh like elf elf trances now they've changed them so it lets the elf essentially it's essentially like chuck uh the show where the the guy is able to access all the different skills and everything like that because it's flashed into his memory they can when they trance dive into their racial memory and come out of the trance with a new proficiency and alter their like so they can routinely change their character every long rest essentially which is cool because there's a lot of things there's a lot of skills that i think don't get used that much because you don't want to hard dive in on like brewer's tools yeah so that you can <laughs> use it one time as flavor text in your campaign mm -hmm. yeah so i'm i'm relatively pleased with uh I mean, I, I I was not one of the people who was reactionary about oh they're they're getting rid of all the uniqueness of races and everything like that. I recognized there were external forces that sort of made it so they could no longer ignore this. Uh, you know, same same thing with uh, the changing the Vistani and Curse of Strahd and Ravenloft and everything. Like they knew it was a problem. Just they there was no nothing motivating them to deal with the problem. So it's sort of the same with this. Uh, they, they're just trying to realign themselves with, I think, public perception. That sounds really cynical, um, but I don't think it's untrue necessarily that they're trying to get sort of onto the right side of history with this. Because, um, like, I, I agree with it. You know, I think it's the thing to do because perception is really important. Uh, perception and such an 
it's such an influential company uh, for a, a certain kind of people, and they need to be putting their best foot forward in in terms of inclusivity. And you know, it's gotten some people mad at them. I don't think there's any validity to that anger. Uh, but I'm glad they're I'm glad they're making efforts. I'm glad they're making efforts. It's probably not perfect. Some of it was probably done quickly over the last couple of years and he taught and he talks about how like you know the published book is really a trailing indicator because we've been working on this for years at this point but you know they started this in response to things from 2020 and i'm really happy with where they ended up based on having read through some of the changes and listening to him talk about it and just sort of the the genuineness in his in his voice about how he was talking about how happy he is that they've changed things and tried to make them a little bit better, make them a little more inclusive. I would encourage everybody to watch these because he's either a really good actor or he really means it. And I like to think he really means it. So that was positive for me. I think of everyone on the Wizards of the Coast design team, I think Jeremy Crawford is one of the individuals who's been pushing for a little more inclusivity from the inside for longer than the average bear. Yeah. You had an, you had an interesting comment when you were watching <laughs> the videos. I thought we were going to keep that off the record, but okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with calling no, it out. It was just, I, I commented that it was a little funny to see these two guys talking about how varied all of the races are and how there's diversity within all the races. And, you know, the they shouldn't be tied down by like, oh, elves are faster than everybody because that doesn't really promote what is more realistic, which is various people might be better at speed and or better at other things and all be elves. Uh, and throughout all of this commentary, it's Todd Kenrick and Jeremy Crawford who are both middle-aged white guys. Yeah, and... I, I, we watched these videos separately. I watched them like the other day, but I told you I had the same <laughs> thought while I was, while I was watching it. And I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. They're clearly, they're clearly coming at this from the right place, but as a, I, I found it funny. And I'd say that as a middle, I was going to say, like, we have a lot of room to talk to white guys with our D and D show. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was interesting. Uh, you know, like, like I said, I'm not, I'm not upset with wizards at all about anything here because it clearly seems like they have a genuine desire to move in the right direction. Maybe, maybe from a corporate perspective, it's, uh, you know, motivated by marketing and money. Uh, but on the more ground level of the actual people doing the writing and putting it together, I think there's sort of a genuine desire to bring more inclusivity. Uh, and that's something that I can really, yeah, change. I think it's, I think it's steps in the right direction and I'm excited to see what else they're working on to kind of bring things up a little bit more. Um, I wanted to get into a little bit some of the more nuanced features of some of the monsters. Because I know I didn't really get to look at much in the way of the monsters. But I did see some opinion pieces about uh, things like balancing where some of these monsters, I want to say it was one of the oozes, now has, instead of bludgeoning damage now has force damage because it's a magical creature and uh <laughs> of course the one group that's really mad about all of these magical monsters having force instead of bludgeoning or slashing or piercing are barbarians uh -huh. <laughs> and i you know it's something i ruminated on for a little while because i tend to think a lot about if I'm creating a monster and I'm giving it a specific kind of damage type, what is going to be able to resist that damage type and under what circumstances? And I think myself personally that giving a highly magical monster highly magical attacks makes more sense. And I think the people who are mad about it are mad about it because they play barbarians and they like not taking damage. <laughs> And you're you're educating me on all this because I've sort of stayed away from any reviews or anything of the book or its contents or the changes or anything like that just because I didn't want to be influenced by it. 
So it's interesting to hear what some of the third party people are saying this, about this that. was just someone i found on twitter um i would credit them if i could find the tweet again but i cannot currently find the tweet again <laughs> but basically they were like hey what do we all think about the fact that they're changing bludgeoning slashing and piercing to force which basically only screws one class out of the entire game <laughs> and i'm it just it just challenges you to play I mean, a better that's barbarian. My thing is, I'm like, look, I'm tired of barbarians being like, yeah, I'm just gonna stand at the front of the party and get wailed on, and I'm your tank, and everybody should be behind me all the time. That's some that's some four E <laughs> thinking right there. It's very MMORPG, and I'm not here for it. I like monsters having variability in their attacks, so that. When you encounter certain kinds of monsters, you're like, aha, and the barbarian is to the front. And the barbarian just took full damage from that attack. And the barbarian is moving away. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the variability of the monster attacks, that's uh, one of the things they talked about was monsters actually being tougher at this point. Because they've realigned um, the way they calculate um, challenge ratings. Uh, and they talk about it in the interview that the, a lot of the feedback they got was, you know, you can have a monster with, let's say, you know, CR 11 or something like that. And then the party just like wails on it and they find their ways around it and they're able to destroy it. And it's largely because um, the CR is calculated based on what they think, you know, a DM is going to be using in terms of their sequence of attacks. But invariably there is, some like there's always a few ways for a, a dm to make choices that are not going to really uh, showcase the breadth of the lethality of the creature so there are and this will tie into the spell casting discussion that they had too but it basically there was there were there were many ways for dms to use the monsters uh inefficiently essentially so what they did was they changed around the monster's attacks. They gave them a little bit more variability. So there were fewer comp there were one fewer combinations of ways for a DM to whiff it like that, which can come from inexperience. It can come from tiredness. It can come from the party just doing something that you didn't expect, which to Crawford's credit, he says shenanigans are a critical part <laughs> of Dungeons and Dragons. And we are not trying to get rid of that. I love it personally when the party just comes up with something that destroys my best Thank laid you, plan. Jeremy. Uh, yeah, but they've uh, realigned some of the monster abilities, given them a little bit more variety, um, given DMs a little bit more to choose from in terms of what they can do to attack. So, quote, they have to the monsters have to earn that higher CR. I mean, I think that's reasonable. Look, if every DM knew how to run monsters effectively so that monsters were highly lethal all the time that the DM wanted them to be, we wouldn't have books like The Monsters Know What They're Doing, which, by the way, is a phenomenal book and everybody should pick it up that's going to be running games. I've been meaning to read that for a while. You and Alex have talked about that a few times, and I've been <laughs> meaning to It's one of my strongest recommendations. Well, they get into a lot of how, like, you should be anticipating the behavior of the monster based on the personality type of what kind of monster that i'm not going to get into it here because uh you should go get the book and read it because i'm not going to do anywhere near as good a job describing it but it's a phenomenal book and i strongly recommend it to anyone who's going to run games but that the big thing is like monster blocks previously and this is something you and i were talking about it's not something i got to see a whole lot of they were too complex. There's too much going on. There's too much to keep track of. There's like, I'm not, if I'm running a game, I already have enough notes and documents and things to keep track of. I'm not also then going to open up my monster spell book and take notes on every spell and what it does. Like there's a reason I expect my sorcerer to know what they're casting and what it does. Right. And you know, the other, one of the other discussions they had, apparently this was like a big point of contention in the community that uh, really I missed totally, but there was a lot of talk before this came out about how they were uh, like getting rid of spell casting for monsters, uh, which is not true, but they talked about 
really their goal was to streamline and condense spell casting for monsters so as not to make it overly complicated so as not to overwhelm a dm and lead into and because that was something that was contributing to those uh, cr issues that they were talking about so and he said the goal was like they wanted to make it easier to learn how to deal with monster spell casting as a dm then quote shorten the pathway to getting to your bliss whether you're a dm or a player and i can really appreciate that because i like full confession here i hate running monsters that primarily focus on spell casting attacks i hate it because it's so much to keep track of and a lot of that has to do i think with the way we run games because we run them in public spaces for uh not necessarily strangers because we've played with a lot of these people before but you know it, it can be for strangers you don't know how they play you don't know what they're going to do you're you're trying to give everybody the full dnd experience at this event that they've come out to while also trying to keep track of the the monster spells and the battle that may be sort of the climactic point of the evening and keeping an eye on the clock because we know we got to wrap up at 10 o'clock because the you know the venue closes but that's sort of a unique issue for us. Uh, but I know when I've run games before, just as sort of a civilian, essentially, uh, I've run into the same thing because there's just like, it's like that gif with all the equations and stuff over somebody's head and they're just getting confused. It's very easy to get lost when you're trying to manage uh, a, like a BBEG that has primarily spellcasting offense. Yeah. And that's something I had started to do a little while before this book came out so i'm very glad to see that i wasn't the only one to have that thought is start treating spells a little bit less like a full spell book with spell slots and a list and etc etc and you can upcast this and you can downcast that and instead saying here's what they've got here's how many slots they've got and here is their full like here is their full list of spells i expect them to use in this encounter if you want to go pull other stuff, they are a wizard type caster. <laughs> go pull the list for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's, I mean it, it's essentially streamlining it to uh, the entire spell list for some of these monsters is essentially just yeah. treated like cantrips because like so many of them just have like yeah you've got these spells as an at will or you know you get to the point where it might as well be an at will because you have like. Well, they can cast these spells three, you know, three or four times a day. Uh, so all you need to do is just look up the spell. There you go. Put your ticker down. It just makes exactly. it a little bit less complicated. And one of the ways that they did that too was they took away, and I think this is where the argument was coming from that they were like getting rid of spell casting. They took away from, like, to to make that simpler, and more streamlined. They took away some stuff from that and sort of realigned it to not like magical abilities that were not spell casting that became like actions or traits uh that would just have a like you know an x per day or at will so it going back to the cr discussion it gives dms a little bit more of an because like it's probably the same amount of stuff but it's spread out a little bit differently to make it easier to pick and choose those attacks rather than just getting lost in a spell list with like you know 15 spells right, on exactly it well and on top of that when you have fewer abilities that are spell casting like proper spell casting then you reduce the amount of time that a player is like oh counter spell and you're like well there goes my whole encounter yeah and he actually addressed that in in the interview because he says yeah, the way, essentially it was his uh, in-universe explanation for the difference here. You know, spellcasting is spellcasting, and these sort of uh, non-casting magical abilities are their own thing. But they're drawing from the same power source, essentially, but they're sort of plucking at the strings of reality a little bit differently. So these non-casting magical abilities are something that, quote, like, there are other mysterious things that seem like spells that give even hardened mages pause. So it's something un unexpected and unexplainable. And he, he also said the best way to think about it is you have your formal magic, which you get through, you know, your books or your bloodline or whatever, but then you've got this sort of informal magic that's more like a force yeah. of nature. 
inherent well, in some of these creatures. And right, that makes exactly. sense. It's like if the creature has been bathed in magic their entire life and they've lived hundreds of years, odds are good that you as a spellcaster who just like a week ago learned how to cast counterspell in the first place aren't going to be able to unweave their connection to a specific magical font. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and he summed it all up by talking about the um, the standard way that monster blocks are set up for casting and stuff like that. And he just said, like, it can be a bit much. Uh, and that's a direct quote. And I look at it as, this guy is one of the chief architects of the game who theoretically knows it and its balance issues better than anybody or most people. He's part of a, a cadre of people that probably know better than anyone. And frequently someone who's and referenced if, online as a font of wisdom, a center of truth, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if he's saying, yeah, man, it's a bit much. <laughs> it's a bit much. Yeah. I, I think you sort of have to listen I mean, to that a little I bit. I think we all felt it. It was a question of whether or not you wanted to or not. Yeah. So I, you know, those were really the three main things they talked about. Monsters being tougher, changes to the uh, player races, uh, changes to spell casting. I don't have a problem with any of it. Uh, like I said, I came at this book with a lot of skepticism, but I've walked away thinking like, as with most D&D books, yes, it's overpriced. But, but I think if you don't have all those other books, it's a nice one-stop shop to really boost up your bestiary, uh, give you a lot more uh, player character options, and give you a little bit more variety in what you're able to do, especially as D&D is now sort of taking this route into embracing things like Spelljammer, uh, where stuff just generally gets weirder. I'm sure Planescape is on the horizon for, uh, for a release coming up soon. And again things just get weirder so they're laying some groundwork for that and i you know i thoroughly enjoy this book uh i'm going to spend a lot more time reading it i spent a couple days reading through it uh but i certainly haven't finished all of it um there were a couple things i wanted to touch on for it like a, a couple mi like a minor nitpick i had but there are some situations where the layout just doesn't make sense because essentially you've got for each creature you've got the art for it you've got the lore block and you've got the stat block and for some of them that's fine because your lore blocks maybe just one big long paragraph or two and you can get it sort of stuck in there and i'm again i'm speaking from my history as a layout guy what do you mean history uh, as a layout sometimes you do almost all of the layouts for anything goblins and growlers publishes <laughs> but you know i know full well when you're putting together something like this you have to make stuff fit and sometimes you have to make compromises for it i think in a couple places they might have made compromises in the wrong place like for example on page 53 the bale um it's got a really awesome picture half page picture of the creature then it's got half page of lore below that and then you flip to the next page and it's got a stat block that runs the length of the page in one column for the bale. But then very next to that is the Valhanath, uh, which has its lore block, and then it has lair actions and regional effects, and then its stat block in like the other column on that page and the two columns on the following page along with the image. It's just bad design and bad layout to separate the bale like that they should have found a way to put it on one page with the stat block facing it. Cause it's really silly to have to flip pages on that. I don't, I don't know what the answer would have been to that because you would have just run into the issue elsewhere. Like the, the issue, whenever you run into something like this, the answer is always, well, you should have rewritten things to, to make it work like, or you should have, had an idea what your layout was going to be and then commission the art to fill that particular hole so you could fit everything on one page. Uh, so that was just a little nitpick. Like if that's the worst thing about this book, aside from the price point, I'm not going to complain too awful much, uh, but it just makes it inconvenient in a couple spots. It doesn't make it unusable by any means. Um, 
Another thing, uh, like this is actually something that I liked, and this was Jeremy Crawford says that this was his absolute most favorite thing that they did in this book, and that it is that they completely realphabetized everything to make it easier to find. And he calls out specifically in the original Monster Manual, you would have to go to the back of the book to find uh, like you know the Bard cleric, you know all the the generic stat blocks, and now they're just alphabetized with all the rest of the uh, monsters in the bestiary, which is super convenient. Um, and so if you're generating an NPC or something like that, you can just flip to it immediately. And then another thing is they added NPC customizations. So like if I need a bard and I really just need to like essentially just pull it out of my back pocket at the drop of a hat, I flip to the bees, I find the bard, and then they've got a customization table for bard performance types and it's a D10 table. And I can just roll on it and it'll determine, oh, is he a poet, a singer? Does he play the flute, the bagpipes? Is he a dancer? Does he do puppets? Is he an actor? And immediately allowing you to sort of figure out what you want to do with that character. I think it's nice because it takes a lot of the heavy mental lifting out of the, the DM's hands. And like for the Blackguard, uh, it's, it's an accoutrement table. So you roll on a D8, uh, armor etched with stylized depictions of gruesome battles. Dozens of flies buzzing around the Blackguard. Glaive adorned with a length of a cloth bearing the words, I choose violence. So it's, re it's really nice. Uh, it, anything that makes the DM's job easier, I'm in favor of. Because we can get really lost when we're trying to put something together. Just trying to craft something perfect. When really all we need is something that works. This coming from the guy who has almost exclusively used a bare stat block with a couple of modifications to run most of his games. Yeah, because I run combat essentially narratively. <laughs> I get a feel for the flow of it and I adjust things uh, to benefit storytelling <laughs> rather than numbers. And I know a lot of people are probably like, you traitorous SOB. <laughs> but I just... I just I think that's a better experience. I mean, uh, it, for a it just goes to show there's uh, no wrong way to play D&D, &D, homie. No. Uh, the book also has uh, the little notes in it from Mordenkainen. Uh, like the little, like, you know, Xanathar had those in the book too. Uh, Tasha had those in the book. And because they condense stuff from several different books, they've got like notes from Tasha, notes from Mordenkainen in here as well. So those are all, that's always neat little flavor text to read there's not as much of them as i would have liked to have seen uh but the ones that, that were was there, the I really biggest like. complaint about this book that i don't really have a counter argument for was because they were condensing a lot of stuff down you lose a lot of the more nuanced setting specific interesting stuff where it's like oh like these monsters are specific to an area and here's what that area is like you know you lose a lot of that sort of detail and flavor and there's not I can't think of a good way to solve that for a book like this, but I simultaneously feel like there's ways to kind of thread that information together for yourself. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I know it upset a fair few people. It doesn't particularly upset me. Oh, I'm big now. Uh, <laughs> um, it doesn't particularly upset me, but I can see why people are upset. And I respect it. I just, I don't have a great solution for that problem. Because you're not going to take six settings books and put in all of the settings details as well as the monsters and the player races. <laughs> well, that just goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, where it's like, no, the whole purpose of this was to show across the multiverse these creatures. So it, may, it doesn't make sense to have setting specific in there if that's what you're trying to do. But these people were probably complaining from a, well, if your argument is for me to buy this book because it has all the stuff collected rather than to buy the individual books, which by the way, I can now no longer buy on D&D Beyond, then you're selling me a condensed version of less than I want. Yeah. And that's, like I said, it's a problem I don't have a solution for. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that just, it, it's sort of, it was left on the cutting yeah. room floor of compromise. And it's one of those things where you can only say it's, it sucks, but it is yeah. what it is. You know, I'm not agreeing with or disagreeing with it. I can understand both sides of the argument. Right. Exactly. Easily. 
so what kind of uh what kind of wrap up do you have on this what are your final I mean, thoughts on this? Uh, my final thoughts are having picked it up twice having read a lot of opinion pieces having run through a few articles and kind of getting a feel for it as a concept i'm generally positive because i do not like things having large barriers to entry and i know for a fact that there are a lot of people who are just starting to get into running these games who are like yeah my player said they wanted to play something like a satyr or something and i have no idea even where the book is for those rules they said they've got it on dnd beyond so like maybe they can share it with me so i can at least see what they're talking about and that's I've been in that position before. It's frustrating. It's really difficult to deal with because you are relying on your players providing you material in a timely fashion. Because <laughs> you can't, you're just starting out. You can't afford to walk out and buy every book. Like, it, it doesn't even make sense. It'd be like, yeah, right, and you it'd be like starting to. out as a guitarist and being like, okay, so I'm buying the guitar and an amp and 12 pedals <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah i always when people are trying to get into the indie i always say don't spend any money just get the uh get the srd and use that and then if you decide you like it after a couple yeah, months which then is buy great up to the point where one of your players walks up and it's like so i was thinking about playing a githyanki <laughs> yeah yeah and then you say, you say Sorry, i don't no. even know what that is yet but I'm thrilled to learn. <laughs> Didn't the Gith Yankee fight the Gith Confederates? Ah, uh, that's a deep South joke. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, my my uh, takeaway from this is, it's worth buying if you don't right. have all the other books. Uh, it's it's got a lot of stuff that's more convenient than the other books, if for no other reason the alphabetization because now I can turn to D for dinosaurs and get all the different kinds of dinosaurs without having to jump around the book for it. Um, it's got the recalculated CR, which should make your life a little easier. And if you're uh, a newer DM, the stat blocks with the way they've been changed uh, will make your life a little bit easier if you're running some of those monsters. Now, having said that, I wonder if they're going to produce a second edition of the Monstrous Manual that includes updates to all those creatures like this maybe that's already been announced and i just don't know but that would seem to be a natural progression for that because they would just they would just put that in all the new like like rule like core rule box sets that they yeah came out i with. mean it would make a certain amount of sense i i also haven't heard anything about them doing that sort of work but i wouldn't be shocked to find that that's exactly what they're doing going forward mm -hmm. so anyway that's my that's my two cents on the book i think it's i think it's worth it if the conditions are correct for you which i guess is most things yeah well josh do you have anything yeah, else or i think that pretty up? much covers my thoughts on everything and some of the stuff surrounding it and i'm excited to read more of the book and look at more of the monster blocks because you know me i love my monster blocks you do. I need to talk to you about something I usually do for me sometime soon, by the way, related to that. But a uh, little housekeeping. Uh, join us on Discord at bit.ly slash goblin discord. You can uh, join the GNG podcast channel on there and tell us how much you disagree with us on many things. You can catch us on Twitter. I'm at Way of Brandalore. Josh is at Black Cloak DM. You can find me on a number of places, including, you know, aside from Twitter, Instagram and the like um we have a patreon patreon.com slash goblin scrawlers throw us a dollar we'd appreciate it um if uh let's see what if else you're Josh? not already listening to our sister podcast quid pro role it is an actual play podcast about a party of adventurers trying to bring metallic dragons back to their world to restore some sense of balance and their primary method for doing so thus far has been crime wrestling and shenanigans so it's a good time yep well, as uh, as the um, primary designer of D and D tells us, shenanigans are a critical exactly. part of Dungeons and Dragons. But yeah, that's a big one. Uh, don't tell Alex I forgot <laughs> that one when I was look doing my you promos. got like eighty percent of the list by yourself. I'm not. This is why we have two heads. Um, 
Also, we've got a little used YouTube channel that I'm trying to use a little bit more these days. I'm uploading video versions of these uh, podcasts on there. So, uh, you know, you can check those out. Uh, if you're listening to this as it's gone out on the old podcast feed, there should be a video version of this of me sitting in an increasingly vacant blue room as I get ready to move. Uh, and Josh sitting in a nice, well-appointed nerd office. Um, that's all I've got. Uh Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Uh, but, you know, hop on Discord, hop on Twitter, uh, holler at us. We'd really appreciate it. Bye, y'all. The Goblins and Growlers podcast was recorded before a live studio audience.